We're going to look to this morning, we're going to continue our study through the book of James. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to look at practical Christianity this morning. And Lord willing, if he gives us next week, we're going to look at examples of practical Christianity. But this morning, if you're not there yet, turn to the book of James, to the, book, uh, to the chapter of chapter 2, starting in verse 14. We're going to read through this together, 14 through 20. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get into, our, into the Lord's Word this morning. James chapter 2, verse 14 says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, for you do well. The demons believe this also and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again. We give you praise and glory that we're able to come together this morning to meet together as your church, as your body, and worship how great you are. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given to us in full, that you've revealed who you are, who Jesus is. And we thank you that you have given us faith to accept salvation in Christ alone. Father, we thank you that we can come this morning and open your word together. We just ask that you will lead and guide this time, for it is your wisdom that we need, not our own. Father, we just ask your blessing on this time that you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to be talking about practical Christianity. What does it look like? Week after week we've been marching through the book of James. We've been looking at what does it mean to be saved? What did it mean for the early Jewish church to be saved and how they practiced that faith? Because in the early Jewish church we know that they were persecuted because they have now left the rabbinic law. They are now leaving the practices of the law of Moses and moving into faith in Christ alone. They did not have to do the rituals and the works no longer because the blood of Christ covered their sins. We know there was a lot of infighting. We know that there was a lot of sects that were out to kill the Jews. But James is writing to one of the earliest churches in this time, and he's giving these young men wisdom on how to stand in the face of this controversy. If you are a man of faith, this is what it looks like. Last couple weeks, we've been talking about those who are active in the church, who serve in the church as deacons, those who are holding personal favoritism for those who look well, who are rich, and not giving deference to the poor, but dishonoring God and God's love of the poor man by telling them, sit at my feet or go in the back where nobody can see you, but to the rich man, here, take this place and seat of honor. So over and over, James is continuing to build upon the idea, if you have faith, this is what it looks like. If you have faith in Christ and believe in Christ, this is how you are to act. Well, now we get into a place that is one of the most controversial portions of Scripture. So many people have taken this section of James and used it to say, ah, he preaches works. Faith is by works and works only. Without works, it's dead. The Mormons have taken this passage and twisted it to say, without works, you do not have salvation. But we're going to look this morning at why that's not so. 
We're going to look this morning at what James is actually preaching, that faith must be accompanied by good works. And we're going to look at why. And to illustrate that, I'm going to talk about two men this morning. We're going to go through their life, and we're going to look at the issues that James brings up. But two things I want to point out. If I am married and I say I love my wife, and that's all I ever do is I say I love my wife, and I never show her any affection. I don't take care of her. I don't provide for her. I don't provide for her spiritual needs, her physical needs, her emotional needs. How do I show my love? Words are words, but we all know words are empty unless they're accompanied by action. And yet if there's another man who is married and he says, I love my wife, but you see the devotion in his life, he takes care of her. He puts her on a pedestal of love and devotion. He cares for her in a way that a man should. He leads her in righteousness, teaches her how to be a godly woman, helps her in rearing godly children. We see a life displayed with a legacy of godliness passed on from his wife down to his children. Is it not easy to see the love of a man for his wife in that? Just as Christ said, a man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Jesus didn't just say, I love the church. He died for the church. He gave himself for it. So this morning, as we look here at this misunderstood passage, we're going to see why, as part of justification through faith, works as part of that. But we're going to look at how it's part of that, biblically. So I want to expound a minute before we dive into the passage on justification. We all know what justification is, right? We're going to shake our heads this morning. If not, you can shake it this way. That's okay. But we all know that justification comes through faith in Christ. But it's a many-faceted jewel. It's like a jewel. If you just take a jewel, there's usually more sides than one. That's what gives it its fire or brilliance. That's what gives it its color. As the light reflects through it, you see different things. Well, justification is the same way. It's broken down into six different facets. Keep your finger in James and turn with me over to the book of Romans. And we're going to see how Paul and James both align in the understanding that faith and works work together. So the first facet of justification is we are justified by grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says this. I'll wait till you get there. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We all know that grace is getting what you don't deserve. And we all know that because of our sin, we are undeserving of God's grace. We are undeserving of justification. And yet, because of Christ, we have justification. And we have peace with God. So justification, we are justified by grace. Second point, we are justified by faith. Romans 5.1. Flip over just one page with me. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have grace, we have faith. We are also justified by the blood of Christ, Romans 5, 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So we have grace, faith, blood. We're also justified by God, Romans 8, 33. A couple pages over. Romans 8, 33 says this, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Fifth, we are justified by power. Romans 4.25. Flip back a couple pages. Romans 4.25 says this, He who has delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Christ was raised in the power of God. Turn with me back to the book of James where we're going to finish. 
for our sixth point. We are also justified by works. James chapter 2, but verse 24, that we'll get into, Lord willing, next week. And you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we see in justification there are many facets to the same thing. Justification is a broad scope of what we enjoy as believers. We are justified by grace. We are justified through faith alone. We are justified through the blood of Christ. We are justified by God the Father who accepted the blood sacrifice. We are justified by the power of God who raised Christ from the dead, declaring that his death and resurrection was the proof that God accepted his atonement, our atonement on his behalf. And we are justified by our works. So these statements don't contradict one another. They just show you the beauty of what God has done through justification. I'm going to read you a quote this morning. And it was from a man named William McDonald. And he said, Grace is the principle upon which God justifies. Faith is the means by which man receives justification. Blood is the price which the Savior had to pay. God is the active agent in our justification. Power is the proof of our justification, and our works are the result of our justification. So you guys see how this all fits together? Is because we are justified in Christ through faith alone, by the power of God, because of the blood of Christ, and through the acceptance of blood sa- uh, Christ's blood sacrifice, now we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good works. Our works are the result of our faith. Without being justified in Christ, are you going to have good works? No, because what does Isaiah tell us? All our works are filthy rags unless they are done in Christ. So this morning as we move through these verses, we're going to look at how James is taking this idea of justification with works. And we're going to see how that plays out for the church today. And he starts off in verse 14 with two great questions. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if somebody says he has faith, but he has no works? And then he says, can this faith save him? So we all know that what we believe in faith, we act upon. If I am up in an airplane and I believe this parachute will open up and allow me to get down to the ground safely, I'll use it. A lot of people out there are going to say, no, if it's a perfectly sound plane, why jump out in the first place? But then again, we all believe that that airplane can fly and sustain itself in flight. So we get on it. Well, it's the same thing with our faith. If we believe in Christ and we believe that what Christ did to save us was sufficient in the eyes of God, we also believe what he said next. If you love me, you will obey me. So again, we see that we as Christians, which means little Christ, are to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. That's what James 1, uh, 6 says. For those of you who have been called in Christ ought to walk as he walked. That is salvation and works and faith all working together for the result of our justification. If we are justified, we can walk in newness of life. We no longer walk under the penalty of the grave, the penalty of the law. We walk in faith and newness of life. So if you say you have faith, but you have not works, can that faith save you? It's hard to answer the question if you have a faith of profession by words only, but you have no works. How do you prove your faith? You can say something, but unless you show that you believe it, how do you show it? Right? It's just basic common sense. If we have faith, 
we will have works. Because we have the Spirit of God, which the outcome of that is the fruits of the Spirit. Do we not teach those to our children when they're little? I remember when my kids were little, well, besides this one, when the older two were little, they would sing through that song about fruits of the Spirit. Or they'd say it, but it'd sound like a song because they were saying them so quickly. Is the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then Elijah would go, and against such things there is no law. I always chuckle about that. But we teach these things to our children. Why? Because these are the practical outcomes of our faith in Christ. These are the things that should define the character of the person who is in Christ. James is saying the same thing. So he breaks it down into practicality now in verse 15 and 16. He says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go, be in peace, and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So here we have James taking an example for us of a man who says, I have faith. And in my profession of my faith, I see somebody in need. And it says specifically, you're a brother or sister. So we can assume that is one of like faith. And he says, go, be warm and be filled. Could also liken it to, hey, I'll pray for you that God provides your need. And yet he has the sustenance in order to provide that need, and yet he doesn't. Is that faith practical? What use is your faith if you don't put it to practice? We go back to that same question in verse 14. Can that faith save a person? If you continually deny the power that God has given you through the resurrection of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit, and you continue to refuse to walk in that power, does that faith save you? Is that saving faith? James is begging the early church to look at their lives and to see, does my life stand in testimony that I am a believer in Jesus Christ? Because oftentimes, and we see this through our, through our culture, through our communities, and where we live, many people profess the name of Christ. But that's all it is. It's a profession. It's a, I believe in Jesus. I have a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, that fireman's insurance, right? Over and over we see this. People are not putting practicality and they're not putting works to the fruit of their faith. They say, I believe in Christ and I live as the world. But we know that Jesus said that you cannot serve and love two masters, for you either love one and hate the other. It's the same way with our life. If we have faith, we must have works. And it's not works done in our flesh so that we can boast, but it's works done in the power of Christ. Because no one can boast before the Lord, because without Christ we are nothing. So he says, if you say, go, be in peace and be warmed and be filled, but you give nothing, what good is that? Check your heart. Where are you at? If you see a need and you can fulfill that need, do you do it? Or do you pass it off of, well, maybe somebody else will do it? Oftentimes, when your heart is pricked to do something for somebody else in love, I guarantee you Satan's not pricking your heart to say, hey, you should really do this. Right? It's just like if God brings somebody to mind to pray for, or like, you know, maybe should I call this person? Don't know why. Satan's not going to poke you and prod you to call people to find out how they're doing or to pray for them. Listen to the Spirit of the Lord as it talks to you. Oftentimes we say we don't hear the Spirit of God, but are we listening for it? Are we expecting God to speak to us in that still, quiet voice? Are we expecting God to speak to us through His Word that we read each and every day? Do we expect God to speak to us as we're sitting here in a Sunday service? Or do we come here to fulfill our duty and our role to come and warm a seat? James says, 
Does your faith save? Does it have practical works that accompany your faith? Verse 17, Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being by itself. I really enjoy that analogy, and I liken it to a car. A car can have everything that it needs to run. It can have compression. It can have fuel. It can have an alternator, starter. It can have a key switch, all that. But if you don't have a battery, what good is all that? You need that spark. You need to be able to ignite the fuel with the oxygen, how it mixes. You need to be able to have a spark in order for it to come to life, in order for it to run. Our faith is very much the same way. Without works, does our faith have practical use? Is it giving life to our faith? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. James continues to impress upon the believer that you must look at your life and does it show the practical fruit of what you profess with your mouth? Do your mouth and your actions line up? We've all heard the expression, actions speak louder than words. It's very true. It's very true. The Apostle John said the same thing in 1 John, and I believe it was in chapter 3. And he admonished the believers there that if you see your brother in need and yet you withhold good from them, how do you have the love of God in you? Solomon said the same thing. If you see your neighbor in need, and yet you do not provide what they need, or you say, ah, go and come back again tomorrow, and maybe I'll give it to you then when you have it with you today, what good is that? Moving on, James now gives us a second example. But if someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Here again we see the example of two men having a conversation. One says, I have faith, and I can show you my faith without works. James says, show me your faith without works, but I'll show you my faith by my works. Again, we go back to that same beginning question. How do you show something unless you have proof of it? You can speak over and over and say, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith, but where do you exercise it? Where's the proof of your faith? James is getting down to just the nitty-gritty of daily life. Christianity is living and doing life together for the glory of God. How do you do that unless you're doing things, unless you're meeting together, unless you're meeting each other's needs, unless you're practically praying for one another and showing one another love? James continues to go back to the practical everyday uses of life. If a brother or sister comes in the door and they look poor and dirty, do you treat them with disdain? Do you dishonor the poor man? It's what we went through two weeks ago. Or do you only show deference and preference to those who have a benefit for your life? Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It is a great challenge for each of us to look at our hearts and to see, am I bearing fruit for Christ? Does my life show the proof of my faith? We need to always continually ask ourselves before the Lord, Lord, show me my heart. Do I have faith without works? Or do my works show my faith in Christ? Because I have faith. Because I believe that through Christ I can do all things. Is that not what Paul said? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Do we live that? Do we practically believe that? 
And does that practicality work out in our lives with proof that we do things for the Lord's glory? And he goes one step further in verse 19, and he says, you believe that God is one or that there is one God. And then he kind of comes at you with a little sarcastic jest, and he says, you do well, for even the demons believe that, and they shudder. And oftentimes I like to pause on this because oftentimes I feel like the Christian church has forgotten the reverence and fear of God. We sometimes make a mockery or make little of God. And yet God is holy. God is pure. God is righteous. God is wrathful. Oftentimes we like to push that aside to just say, oh, God is love. Well, he is, but he's also wrathful. And he's perfect in that. We learn in James chapter 1 that God has righteous anger. He's justified and perfect in that. And he also cautions us to not become angry ourselves because oftentimes the the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. But do we stop and truly believe that there is one God? And if we do, how does that impact our lives? For the demons, they shudder in fear because they know their end. They know that one day they are going to be judged and tossed into the lake of fire. They know this. What do we know of our end? Do we fear in that way because we do not have faith? Or do we fear in a different way? We fear in our reverence of who God is, and so that transforms our hearts and our minds, and we work it out every day in practical daily living to the glory of God. How do we do that? Where do we fall on that fear? We don't need to fear condemnation because there is no condemnation. But we do need to fear because we will be judged for our works. Isn't that what the book of Revelation tells us? One day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Some people will be given reward. Some people will be burned on the backside as they get into heaven. What do we have to show our Savior in our lives of how much we love him? Does it play out in day-to-day life? Does it play out in our thought life? Our thought life is a great battleground. How we think, isn't that what Solomon said? So a man thinks that he is. Oftentimes we wrestle in our thought life because it's not something that people see most of the time. It's in our hearts, it's in our minds, it's quiet, it's closed, but God sees, God knows. Do we seek to have victory in our thought life that it may spill over into our daily lives? And James continues with one more question in verse 20. He says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? I love the sarcasm of James a little bit here. He just kind of brings it down to this, the practicality of, look, shake your life up, get an idea, and live it. If you say you believe it, live it. Or are you being like a foolish person? A foolish fellow who refuses to recognize that faith must have works. Because works is the practical outcome of your faith. You start with faith in Christ, but you don't stay there. You move, you grow, you mature, you bear fruit. This is what each Christian must have. They must have a life of fruit. What did Jesus teach? A tree without fruit will be cut down and burned because it's useless for anything. Where are we at today? Where are we at in our daily life? What is God showing us? What does our life show us? That's a really good place to start. If you stop and evaluate your life right now, of what, you, what you're doing, what you're investing in, what you put your time and your effort into, what does it show you? Do 
Do we pray for God to show us our hearts? And do we look at it when he does? Because sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes God shows us something in our life and we're like, ooh, I wasn't ready to look at that yet. We talked about this last week a bit. Are we really ready for God to show us our hearts? Are we really ready to see where we're at practically? Are we willing to say, okay, Lord, what more do I have to give up? Because we always do. None of us are going to get there and be perfect one day, and then God's going to say, well done, now it's time to come home. No, we grow each and every day. When we get to that point where we say we don't have any more growth to do, might want to check where your heart is. I've talked to men that have said, ah, I don't need to listen to the sermon because I've already heard everything that I need to hear. It's a scary place to be. It's a hard place to be. Do we allow God to search our hearts and are we willing to yield that which we must yield? Are we willing to give up more of ourselves to gain more of Christ? Because in the end, that's all that matters is Christ and God's glory. We all know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do we practically practice that now? Is our worship full of joy? Is our worship full of praise and glory for the one who has done so much for us? And does that spill over into our life? Do we look at our fellow man and judge another servant? We talked about that last week. Do we judge the servant of another unjustly? Or do we look for those who are lost? And do we plead with them about the blood of Christ? Do we share with them the gospel? Do we show them what love is? Because we've been shown the love of Christ. Do others not deserve to see that and to practically know what that looks like? I know for me, there's a lot of people in my life that don't understand that. They don't see what God's love really looks like practically. They look at the church as a whole and they see a bunch of hypocrites who live the same way they do but then say something different on a Sunday. Is that what our life is defined as? Or is it defined as practical loving of our neighbor? To love our neighbor as ourselves, and to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because we know that outside of these two commandments, you can't sin if you're loving God and loving your neighbor. There's no room for it. That's why Jesus said they were the greatest commandments. Because if you put God first and you put your neighbor before yourself, you are doing what God has asked you to do. Practical bearing of fruit in your life. I thought it was pretty neat this morning that we were going to share in communion together today. As we look at what we're learning in the book of James, are we putting it into practice? Communion is a great example. It's a physical example of examining our hearts before the Lord. Are we right with our brother and sister? Are we right with the Lord? If we recognize and we say that the body and blood of Christ is what has saved us, do we live that out? Do we love others as we love ourselves? Do we honor the Lord by what we do and say, or do we dishonor him by how we treat one another? James told us that last week. Do you dishonor that which God has chosen to honor? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? And what does that look like? So we're going to stop there for this morning. Lord willing, next week we're going to continue on looking at two examples that James gives us, the example of Abraham and the example of Rahab, and how faith practically worked itself out in their life, and how faith and works go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin.
just like grace and mercy. We have grace because God granted mercy. So let's pray, and then we're going to partake of communion together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again that you've given us your word, that you have not left us as lost children, that you have sought us out, that you have bought us with the precious blood of Christ, and that you have given us of your spirit that we can practically live in the power of redemption. Father, we know that in the Old Testament, men were saved by faith. We also know that they understood that it was not the law that would save them, but that the law pointed out their deficiency before you. And that year after year, they had to come and offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you that we do not need to bring a sacrifice before you in the sense of a blood offering, but that Christ paid it all. And that because of Christ's shed blood that we can live in the power and newness of life. Father, help us to be challenged to look at our hearts and to look at our lives practically on a daily basis to lay it before you and ask you to show us, Lord, what do we need to give up? How can we continue to give up our right to be offended by one another? How can we continue to walk and live in love and live in faithfulness and to bear fruit? Father, help us to look at those who are lost and to love them well. Help us to give them the message of the gospel that there is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we just pray that you'll bless this time. And as we come before you to share in communion once again this week, Lord, we just ask that you'll continue to shed light into our hearts, that we may seek forgiveness where forgiveness is needed, that we may grant forgiveness to those who, need, who ask for it. And Father, may we continue to live in the truth of who you are and who we are in Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.